You're tuned in to CJSW 90.9 FM. My name is Sean Collins, and I'm the host of Energy Voices. And over the next hour, we're going to be walking you through a number of different topics in the world of energy, sustainable energy, and climate change. This month, we're going to focus on the effects that you can have through policy and public service through our first interview with an elected official, Minister Curry Dixon, the Minister of Environment and Economic Development in the Yukon Territory in Canada. We're also going to have a detailed discussion with Alex Monroe, a clean tech venture capitalist who is focused on how we invest in and finance the next generation of game-changing billion-dollar energy technologies. Our final segment tonight will be an essay that was done by one of our student members in Europe, Julian, who has an insightful look at decommissioning of oil rigs and the logistical, financial, and human resource challenges we face as a society in dealing with industrial infrastructure that dwarfs even the Eiffel Tower in size, scope, and raw materials. We encourage you to tweet along or share your thoughts using hashtag Energy Voices on Facebook and Twitter. And if you want to listen to previous episodes of Energy Voices, you can go to bit.ly slash energyvoices or at cgsw.com, you can be linked to the previous podcast series. On today's episode of Energy Voices, we're going to kick things off with This Month in Energy. Chinese and Japanese demand for solar panels will drive the price of polysilicon, the commodity used to make photovoltaic cells, up by 15% this year. Both these countries are subsidizing solar panel installations, which has contributed significantly to the demand for this product. In 2014, 44.5 gigawatts of solar capacity is expected to be installed around the world, and Japan and China could make up half that added capacity. Bangladesh is one of the most energy-poor regions in the world. In 2009, only 47% of the population had access to electricity. A recent report from the International Renewable Energy Agency shows that the country is getting serious about renewables at a rate of 80,000 small-scale solar PV installations per month. After what is estimated to be 10 years of negotiations, China and Russia signed a $400 billion deal this week that will see Russia's Gazprom provide China's National Petroleum Corp with up to 38 billion cubic meters of gas per year, starting in 2018, for 30 years. In California, federal energy authorities have slashed the estimated amount of recoverable oil by 96%. Of the 13.7 billion barrels of oil that were thought to be recoverable, just 600 million barrels of oil will actually be able to be extracted. A 19-year-old student at Harvard University has won the top prize at the Intel Young Scientist Awards. Last year, Isha Kerr invented a supercapacitor energy storage device using nanomaterials. This device could help power mobile phones and other battery-powered technologies in a more quick fashion. You're tuned into Energy Voices on CGSW 90.9 FM. Please join me in welcoming Jenny Matchett to the studio and with Minister Curry Dixon, the Minister of Environment and Economic Development in the Yukon Territory in Canada. Hi, Minister Dixon. Thanks for joining us today here on Energy Voices. We are really excited about this discussion as you are our first elected official on the show. So welcome. Uh, Hi, Jenny. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure to chat with you. Thanks. I'll kick things off here by asking you to explain to the audience uh, your current role within the Yukon government. Okay. Well, I'm uh, I'm currently an elected official in, Yuka, in, uh, in the Yukon Territory. I'm an, ML, uh, an MLA, so I represent a, a electoral district in Whitehorse in Yukon. And as such, I'm also the uh, Minister of Environment and the Minister of Economic Development, and I'm the minister responsible for the Public Service Commission here in Yukon. Great. So, Great. so I guess uh, for additional explanation, I, so I, I, uh, uh, I guess I would pr- provide the sort of the policy direction for those departments and uh, and oper- and you know manage their their budgets and uh, and personnel. Great. So, 
As a minister responsible for both the environment and economy, I'm, I'm sure you received some contrasting opinions about your agenda. I just wondered if you could in- comment on how you interpret the needs and desires of your constituents and uh, comment on what the people are primarily asking for on both those files. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I mean, first of all, the, the thing I wanted to say was that you know some of the questions we get about that are sort of you know well aren't you know aren't economic development and, and environment uh, contrasting issues shouldn't those, shouldn't those two issues be at the head or at, you know competing with each other and and that's certainly not how we view things up here. Um, the, the premier made a very explicit decision when he made me minister of both of those, and the reason for that was because of the well our belief at least that those are really two sides of the same coin. You, you can't have one without the other. You have to have an economy, obviously, but you have to have an economy developed in a way that uh, allows for uh, the protection and conservation of the environment. So that's the reason why uh, you have both. Uh, really, uh, the focus for both those files for me is, is sustainable development. So I think if I could sum up those uh, two two departments into into one uh, sort of theme, it's, it's they're both sustainable development. Um, you know, so you asked about what. Uh, my constituents or what Yukoners want. And, and I think, you know, it's different, obviously, depending on who you ask and, and which riding you look at. Obviously, the needs of my riding as, as somewhat of an urban riding are different than those of a community. But I think what Yukoners in, in general agree is that, you know, they want to have um, opportunities for their kids. They want to have jobs. They want to have uh, economic development and, and all the commensurate uh, benefits that that brings, but that they, they also, um, I'd say probably more so in Yukon than anywhere else in the country, uh, value our environment. We've got an incredibly beautiful place up here. Uh, the, the environment here is um, astounding, really, and, and folks uh, really value it uh, very highly. So whenever we talk about the need for economic development, uh, there's always the consideration uh, people express uh, for uh, ensuring that that economic development happens in a, in a way that's environmentally sustainable. Great. Uh, so just a quick question to follow up on that. Have you found it difficult to meet both of those needs? Um, well, yeah, it's always it's a challenge for, for everybody. It's a challenge for every government anywhere. Um, so I, 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 yes, I found it challenging, but I don't think I found it any more challenging than any other government or any other politician in the country. Uh, it's a challenge that, that I think all Canadians sort of face, and, and, uh, and regardless of where you live in the country, you're going to run into that kind of um, challenge. You know, balance that finding that balance between economic development and the protection of the environment. Um, so I don't think I don't think the challenges I've faced have been in any way unique necessarily, but uh, perhaps a little more um, a little more acute here in the Yukon, given the fact that we do have such a, an incredible environment and and people value it so highly. Right. Okay. So just to jump out a little bit from uh, a higher level, I guess, uh, what federal economic and environment policies do you align with as a minister in the Yukon, and which do you not agree with? Mm-hmm. Well, I think, uh, you know, first of all, I'd say that the current uh, federal government has uh, put a greater focus on the Canadian North than any other government that I have ever seen uh, or, or learned about. Uh, I'd say that the current government's focus on the North has been um, uh, incredible. Uh, it's been exceptional, and it's been to the benefit of Northerners, but also I think the benefit of all Canadians. Um, you know, the, the economic potential of the North is is incredible, and I think uh, the willingness of the federal government to invest in its people, in its environment, and its economy um, is uh, is tremendously uh, beneficial to to Northerners and to, to Canadians alike. Um, so yeah, I, I would say you know the, the the focus on the North that the current government has, I think, has been uh, a tremendous um, uh, a tremendous benefit to, to Northerners and Canadians alike. Uh, on the environmental side, you know, there, there's there's challenges always. Uh, you know, I, I'm not envious of the challenges that the federal government faces on on issues related to the environment. Uh, I think they've made some great steps uh, with regards to a number of issues. Um, you know, the the um, focus that they find in the north really has been around uh, investing considerable amounts of money into adaptation uh, to climate change. And that's something that is very relevant for us. Uh, we, we see, feel, and hear uh, climate change uh, on a daily basis up here in, in, the, in the north. And uh, having the resources to adapt to that is something that we, uh, we need. Um, you know, that being said, there's always, you know, some 
uh, legitimate uh, challenges and concerns around uh, the speed at which the government takes action uh, with regards to climate change on, uh, on other fronts. I know that uh, the current approach they're taking, the sort of sector-by-sector approach to regulating uh, um, you know, for, for uh, climate change or for, or for greenhouse gas emissions, um, has taken a little longer than I think a lot of people expected. Um, you know, we're still waiting for the, uh, the regulations around uh, the oil and gas industry. Uh, and I'm hopeful that that'll come in soon. I think it's. Uh, I think. I think the industry. I think the provinces. I think everybody's ready for it, and it's just. A, and it just needs to needs to happen sooner rather than later. Great. That was really insightful and leads me into my next question. Mm-hmm. So, as a policymaker, do you believe the current political structure handcuffs policymakers from enacting meaningful change on the climate change file? <sighs> uh, well, I think. I think there's a lot of reasons why climate change is a, a difficult issue to handle. It's a it's a complex issue and one that one that is faced by every person on the globe. Um, so I, I I don't necessarily I think there's some unique cases uh, some unique challenges in Canada and I'll and I'll get to those. But I think one of the reasons why uh, well some of the reasons why climate change is such a a challenge is is the fact that it, um, it gets to the the, the heart of of our global economy uh you know the the use of of fossil fuels for uh the creation of energy or or electricity more specifically uh is intrinsic pretty much everywhere you go and it's not something that can be changed at the uh the snap of a finger um so making sort of um uh, meaningful changes that will affect uh, or, or address the challenge of climate change is, is something that's going to take time, whether we like it or not. Uh, unfortunately, um, as we're beginning to see, uh, climate change is uh, is very real and, and rapidly uh, occurring. So, um, you know, it's it's a it's a it's a structural problem that that is not unique to any one country. Um, you know, and that's because of the nature of the issue. Uh, you know, the fact that that. Well, I think I think globally about 85% of greenhouse gas emissions are, are carbon dioxide, and uh, and carbon dioxide unfortunately is a very long-lived um, gas. So when it goes into the ozone, it stays there for a very long time, and that means that even actions, dramatic actions taken immediately, won't necessarily result in in um, change happening immediately either. So it's it, having that distance between action and result um, presents a challenge for governments. Uh, and likewise, the fact that um, w- once greenhouse gases go into the atmosphere, uh, they they spread. So uh, greenhouse gases emitted from one country affect all countries. Uh, so there's that aspect of tragedy of the commons, of course, as well, where, where um, it, well, it, that's pretty self-evident. So uh, anyways, I think that's sort of some general comments about why climate change is a challenge internationally. Uh, but here in Canada specifically, uh, I'd say there's unique challenges in the fact that uh, our constitutional structure is so um, so designed, uh, uh, well, as designed as it is, I should say. Um, you know, the provinces, and in, in, in the Yukon's case, the territories, um, have such an important role in the, in the management of our natural resources. And obviously, you know, the development and, and uh, responsible development of our natural resources is uh, a key factor in taking meaningful action on climate, on climate change. So um, it's a challenge for the federal government because of the, the strong roles of provinces and territories. And it's, pro- uh, it's a challenge then for the provinces and territories because there's no uh, central agency that can uh, take uh, the level of action that would be needed for, for dramatic nationwide change. So, yeah, so to answer your original question, is our, does our current political structure inhibit policymaking on climate change? I think, it, I think that's a factor. Uh, and for the reasons I suggested, I think it's, uh, it's not the only factor, but it certainly is one. Very interesting. Thank you. Um, so just to follow up to that, do you think um, there are political structure changes that could come into place that would lead to more aggressive action on the issue of climate change? And I understand you commented on how there's this gap between action now and and, and the result. Um, but do you mind commenting briefly on what changes you would recommend making? Mm. Well, I mean, you know, I think continuing to have um, dialogue and discourse is so important for the provinces. Um, and, and that's a role that the federal government can take, I think, uh, in terms of engaging the provinces and, and uh, ensuring that... Um, that people are, are taking action in a coordinated fashion. Um, you know, the, the different provinces are doing some very innovative 
um, groundbreaking stuff. Uh, whether you whether you look at Alberta, whether you look at the East Coast, whether you, whether you look at uh, you know Quebec or Ontario, uh, there's a range of real interesting um, identifiable actions that are being taken that um, are are really important. Um, but you know sometimes you know if they're taken in a vacuum or if they're taken in absence of consideration of what's going on in other parts of the country, it's uh, um, you know it, that can that can it, you know add challenge to the already challenge uh, the already challenging aspect of that problem. So so I think there's a need for increased levels of dialogue. Uh, and then I think one of the, one of the things that we can be doing more of is engaging at, re- at a regional basis. And I don't just mean in Canada. I mean that um, you know the relationship between, for instance, you know British Columbia and and Washington, Oregon, and and California is just as important as the relationship between British Columbia and say Nova Scotia. Uh, in fact, it's you could argue that it's actually probably more important. So I think that across um, national lines. Um, engaging at a regional level is going to be important. So, you know, you, you see some examples of that that have had, you know, uh, some success, you know, the Canada West stuff or, or um, um, you know, Penoir, those, those sorts of bodies that, I'm oh, sorry, the Pacific Northwest Economic Region, um, and I'm not supposed to use acronyms without defining them. Um, <laughs> yeah, so some of those, uh, there's been examples of, of those having success, and I think that, that, that those successes should be built on. So I, I think uh, engaging, uh, engaging in a more meaningful dialogue and, and engaging at a regional basis would be two of the, the sort of the political level um, actions that could be taken between uh, between jurisdictions. Great. Okay, so I just have another question about uh, the federal government's role in resource development in Canada. So mm-hmm. given the current um, polarized situation we face with respect to um, resource infrastructure projects. Uh, do you think that, comment, I guess, on how you think the federal government could have done things differently or should do things differently with respect to getting some of these projects built? Okay. Uh, well, you know, uh, I'm, I'm a bit loath to, to wade into issues that occur outside of my jurisdiction because I, I know how, how frustrating that can be when others do it. So, you know, I don't want to, I, I think what you're talking about is, is pipelines and the challenge of, of, uh, of getting our resources to market. Um, you know, I, I think it's necessary. Uh, I'll say that to begin with. I think it's necessary that we get our resources to market in an in efficient and economic way um, because it, the, the simple fact is if, if we don't uh, that market will be filled by someone else. That's just how the world works. Um, you know, look, look at look at the deal that China just signed with Russia. You know, they, they uh, the the natural gas deal. You know, hundreds of billions, hundreds of billions of dollars uh, worth of uh, infrastructure being developed between Russia and China. Uh, you know, and that's that's a specific result of 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 other mark or other uh, sources of natural gas or or uh, you know any kind of energy, I suppose. Um, not being able to meet that demand in China, so you know th- that's that's just one example. But I think the fact that we uh, we have such uh, an incredible endowment of natural resources, um, you know, requires us to develop them responsibly. But it also, you know, the fact that we that we are able to develop our our natural resources responsibly is something that I think it's incumbent on us to do. And uh, and, and the reality that we have to face is that if we don't um, develop ours, develop ours responsibly, uh, it will come from somewhere else. So, you know, the, the arguments that, uh, you know, you hear around the Keystone pipeline around, you know, uh, the Keystone will be, um, uh, you know, a, a crime against humanity because of climate change, it, you know, it, it falls flat on its face, I think, because of the fact that, uh, it, if it doesn't come from here, it'll come from somewhere else. So, um, I think we need to to build infrastructure. Uh, I think we need to develop our resources. And I think we need to get them to to the markets that that need them uh, as efficiently and economically as possible. Uh, but that being said, you know th- th- there's a lot of considerations within within Canada uh, as to how we build them. And uh, I'm not one to to tell somebody else how to do their business. But you know I think what Yukon uh, is a good example of, despite some of the challenges we face, is a really positive uh, for the most part. And well-structured arrangement with our our First Nations. Uh, we've got settled land claims in Yukon, so 11 out of our 14 First Nations in Yukon are uh, have final land claims agreements and have uh, self-government agreements. That means that they have a real clear ownership stake in um, natural resources in Yukon, and uh, that 
level of engagement and that positive engagement leads them to um, to become meaningful partners in the development of our natural resources here in Yukon. And I, I'm not saying that's necessarily a model that can be emulated in other parts of the country, but it's certainly something that others, I think, should be looking at as, as an example of success. So, um, you know, engaging with uh, communities, engaging with First Nations is, is so important, as everyone knows, and that's, uh, I don't think that's any different uh, for pipelines or for roads or or power lines, you know, it, it's any kind of economic infrastructure needs to have that, that level of engagement, I think. Excellent. Thanks, Curry. Or thank you, Minister Dixon. Um, okay, so I'm going to wrap things up here with a, a few uh, final questions. Sure. I just thought it would be it would be interesting for you to to comment on, you know, as an elected representative of citizens, which is a pretty unique role, um, what recommendations would you make to citizens generally to more meaningfully influence and engage in policy? Well, I mean, you know, that's a great question because it's so, you know, it's a... It's a question that nobody's answered really effectively, I don't think, in the recent history at least, especially when you consider uh, the fact that, um, you know, you see some declining voter turnouts in parts of the country. You see, um, you know, challenges around getting, you know, youth involved. And, you know, basically my my opinion on that is is that uh, I think people need to understand the importance of what governments do with their money uh, as taxpayers or as, as citizens. And drawing a, a causal link between uh, what you know what actions the government takes and the accountability back to to you as a citizen um, needs to be made because uh, when, you know when governments act they're they're doing so on on our behalf as citizens and if you don't understand that uh, then you're not likely to to care or and then therefore you're not likely to engage and and uh, and vote so I think um, you know. Increasing individuals' understanding of how governments work, uh, increasing the knowledge of how policy is made and how uh, how to best involve yourself in that process is important. Uh, I mean, obviously, not everybody can can run and and win and and become a politician, but there are other ways to to involve yourself, and there are other ways to have a, a meaningful impact on how policy is made, whether it's through the through participation and involvement in a political party. Whether it's through participation and involvement in NGOs, um, you know, like the Student Energy is a great example. Um, you, from what I understand, you, you know, you're engaging with with uh, with youth to to advance the understanding of sustainable development and 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 uh, transitioning towards a you know greener energy future. That's that's very that's incredible, and and we need more of that. So that you know. It's kind of a, a cliched answer, and I, and I apologize for that, but I really don't think anybody else has a, has a better one because I, I've never heard of a better answer. So, um, you know, engaging people more in a more meaningful way and, and, and understanding, uh, having a better understanding of how policy is made and how government works, uh, I think necessarily leads to people being more interested and therefore participating. Well, thank you for that. Uh, just as a really quick follow-up to that, do you have any specific case studies of an individual having an impact on you or your policy recommendations? Oh, yeah, geez. I mean, I, <laughs> I wouldn't want to say names, I guess, but you know, <laughs> we're always, uh, you know, you can't under, you can't underestimate how important, you know, how meaningful it is to have somebody contact you as as minister and express, you know, a concern or a positive word or or anything about policy. Because it doesn't happen very often, right? I mean, we're kind of, you know, you get used to the sort of the nasty tweets and the hate mail. That comes with a job. You understand that. But having somebody contact you and make a meaningful um, statement about policy or raise a a meaningful question and a, a, you know, a well-thought-out reasoned um, question or, or comment on policy it has an effect on you. It, it, it does. And, um, you know, so I think people shouldn't underestimate how important it is to, to comment and, and have your voice heard, whether it's, uh, whether it's through any of those means I suggested earlier, political party, NGO, direct engagement. Um, you know, th- those things do matter. And, and I mean, I, I, I kind of scoffed at that before, before I got into the politics, but it's true as, as a politician, I'll tell you, I mean, if someone comes up to you and, and says, uh, thoughtful, intelligent comments. Uh, you take them to heart, and and uh, and you need to hear that because sometimes when you get into this job, you can easily get caught in your own little bubble, uh, and you you start listening to only one group of people or 
start only listening to your staff or your officials and and it's easy to get uh um to grow some some distance between you and the real world so uh having individuals contact you and tell you something is uh is so important not only for the individual but for the politician and for the government as well Great. So just, do you have a preferred format for contacting? Yelling. I prefer yelling. If you can <laughs> yell at me, that's usually the best. No, I, no, I, no, I mean, you know, a quick email to a politician. I mean, I mean, obviously it's a little different in Yukon where, you know, I, I, I check my own emails and stuff, and I'm sure federal politicians have a challenge doing that because of the volume. But, yeah. you know, just a, a, a nice little letter or, or a phone call or email, you know, goes a long way towards... Um, goes a long way towards actually, I think, making change, believe it or not. Great. Thank you very much for that. So my final question here is for our Twitter generation audience. So Student Energy serves a student network globally, Mm -hmm. and it would just be really great for you to comment on the significance of your age and some notable impacts that that's had on your career in politics so far. I think that would be really inspirational for our viewers. Okay. Well, when I was elected, uh, I was 26. So I became a minister at, at 26. I'm, I'm 28 now, so I'm much older. Uh, <laughs> I'm an old man now. Uh, I've got a significant amount of gray hair. Um, but uh, no, I mean, you know, it, it's important, I think, for younger people to get involved. I think, though, that that people need to just get over age as a whole, on the whole. I mean, whether you're 28 or 58 or 88, um, you know, there's a role to be played. And if you think you're going to be able to do that role well and... Um, and you want to do it, then by all means get involved because uh, I, I don't think people, I don't think there's some uh, bias people have against people about age. I think that's a, a lost idea. I think that that's something that died in the 19th century. I mean, uh, I think uh, I think people should ignore age and, and just go, go do whatever they want or think they should do uh, based on their beliefs and, and not let age get in the way. Um, you know, that it's something that that you you face for sure. I mean, I, I've faced it. I mean, my first uh, federal provincial territorial meeting. You know, you, you walk into the room with a bunch of fifty some odd gray haired old white guys, and uh, and they say sort of, "Oh, whose assistant are you?" <laughs> and you and then you have to kind of you know engage with them in a positive way. So you have to look, or you have to overlook some of that stuff sometimes. But you know, I would just say you know, if don't let age, don't let any uh, thing like that get in your way. Um, and uh, it shouldn't, and I, I don't think, I, I really don't think Canadians, uh, at least, and certainly Yukoners, uh, I don't think that matters to them. So, um, you know, don't don't let your impression that you think you're too young to do something or too old to do something ever hold you back. Awesome. Well, thank you very much, Minister Dixon, for your time today. We really appreciate it, and uh, take care. My pleasure. Thanks, Jenny. Next up on Energy Voices, we're going to try something a little bit different. Sometimes in the world of energy and sustainability, people can get caught up in uh, the negativity or the pessimism of the sort of scale of the challenge that we face. And so today we want to bring a little bit of fun back into the world of energy and share with you our top five crazy energy facts that will make you pick up your head and think about the energy system a little bit different. So please join me in welcoming Julia Kavuma to the studio, who's going to walk you through the top five crazy energy facts for the month of May. Number one, if you consider your carbon footprint in terms of cans of Coke, there are approximately 2.2 grams in the average can of Coke, which is 12 fluid ounces or 355 milliliters. If you compare that to the carbon footprint of laptop use per hour, that is approximately five cans of Coke. If you consider a flight from London to Tokyo per person, that's about 480,000 cans of Coke. And if you consider uh, the carbon footprint of Mount Etna, which is the tallest volcano in Europe, that's about 400 billion cans of Coke. Number two. How many miles per gallon would a human achieve walking or running if we could metabolize gasoline? So if we know that cars travel or get between 10 and 60 miles per gallon, um, and we estimate a small car to weigh about 1,000 kilograms and get 30 miles per gallon, we can assume that a human weighs about 10 times less and our efficiency to be about the same of that of the car at 25%. 
So while walking is less efficient than rolling, the air resistant at the speed at the speed of walking is much less than driving. So a human would get about 10 times the mileage of a car per gallon. So that is about 300 miles per gallon if we could metabolize gasoline. And so this is pretty cool because we know that gasoline and fat contain about the same amount of chemical energy. So as humans, we could walk for hundreds of miles on a single gallon of gasoline. But consider the alternative. We need to walk tens of miles to burn a single pound of fat. Number three. What is more efficient, a car, a bike, a truck, or a train, or a plane, to transport one ton of cargo across the United States? So if we assume that the distance between New York City and Los Angeles is about 3,000 miles, or 5,000 kilometers, a truck would consume 100 liters of gasoline, a car would consume 600 liters of gasoline, a bike would consume the energy equivalent to 300 liters of gasoline, a train would consume 4 liters of gasoline, and a plane would consume 500 liters of gasoline to transport a ton of cargo across the United States. Number four. Did you know that North America has more natural gas than Saudi Arabia has oil? If all of the natural gas pipelines in the United States were connected to each other, they would stretch to and from the moon almost three times. Number five. A study compared the causes of deaths from different power sources. For every one person that dies from the radiation effects and incidents from nuclear power, 4,000 people die from the air emissions and mining incidents related with producing power from coal. Thanks, Julia. For any of our listeners that have crazy facts of their own, you can get them on air by tweeting us at Student Energy or on Facebook by searching Student Energy and either messaging or posting on our wall. You're tuned into Energy Voices on CGSW 90.9 FM. Up next, we have a discussion with Alex Monroe, a clean tech venture capitalist who is focused on how we invest in and finance the next generation of game-changing billion-dollar energy technologies. So first off, welcome to the studio, Alex. Thank you very much, Sean. It's a pleasure to be here. So to kick us off, just give us uh, your quick bio and overview. How did you get into the venture capital space? The venture capital space? Uh, Well, I kind of tripped into it eventually. I started in the energy and environment space at the beginning of my career, and I got very early on trying to do a whole bunch of startups and some failed, some succeeded, I got an incredible eyesight and eye opener onto what venture capital was. Um, But as well, because of the nature of trying to raise capital for some of those startups, it became pretty clear early on that there were a whole bunch of different levels of the financial ecosystem. The one that attracted me the most was, of course, the highest risk, highest return one, and that became venture capital for me. Uh, So the trajectory I took after that was eventually to get back to early stage. And the only route I could do was to start at the very big stage. So I started banking and project finance, corporate finance, and then worked my way back down the ecosystem to from doing, you know, billion dollar deals all the way doing $150,000 deals. So it was a migration to get where I really wanted to be. And it took a little bit of a circuitous route to get there. And so for our listeners that are unfamiliar with venture capital, uh, what's the Oxford Dictionary definition or or what is Alex's Oxford Dictionary definition of VC? So I'd love to rewrite the Oxford Dictionary on this (laughs) one, but venture capital is the type of investing whereby you are looking at opportunities that are generally disruptive, but not necessarily. Ideally, the catch, though, is you want a total addressable market that is massive. So the tens of billions of dollars has to be, that's what we're going to go after. There's a lot of investment opportunities out there in companies that have an opportunity that's, you know, this is a $20 million, a $50 million idea. And those are great. And those people should be pursuing those, to be sure. But venture capitalists are saying, this is going to take some time. It's going to take a lot of patience, a lot of skill 
to get it right. And that means that this is the big prize. It's got to be a big prize for us to be able to invest the time and the money to do that. And what are the, the primary industries in the venture capital space? So obviously you come from an energy background, but what are the other opportunities out there for venture capitalists? So the key ones have generally been outlined as the life sciences, uh, which includes pharmaceuticals, generally the drug developers, uh, but also other kinds of healthcare products. Then you have the traditional IT. So nowadays that tends to encompass uh, just about every industrial sector one way or the other. And that has presented itself to be the highest uh, return generally because the cost of capital can be very low to generate some good software platform and then you just copy it over and over again. So that's created a, um, a new transition in the venture capital industry in about the past 25 years. The last one is fairly new to the scene, and it's the one that is categorized as clean tech. But what that broadly means is how you're affecting energy, environment, and industrials more broadly. So whereas the other two have distinct aspects of them, one, for example, pharmaceuticals has a 10 to 15 year lead time on it, so the time is extremely hard to reach, and two, for IT, where you have very low cost of funds, or cost rather of, of the capital that you're putting into the company because of its... Mm -hmm. um, its ready dissemination. Clean tech is the third and more most challenging little brother that people are still struggling to get right. Mm -hmm. Perfect. And so when you talk about uh, addressing a multi-billion dollar market, obviously the prize is extremely large and the goal is extremely large, but uh, that's obviously something that's easier said than done. So can you maybe walk us through the economics of uh, a venture capital fund in the clean tech space. So what are the time horizons? What kind of investments are you making? Give us a bit of the, the meat on the bone of, of how you do or how you hope to make money. So I can give you a little bit of that. Some of it is a bit of secret sauce. And I think every fund would probably tell you the same. How they design their portfolio and the target the particular companies that they're looking at is really due to the skill set of the team coming to the table. A lot of people have tried to cross industrial sectors based on their skill set in one other industry, and then they've found it hasn't worked out. And that's just because people have certain backgrounds and your skills are your skills. So most funds tend to have a portfolio that really matches the individuals involved. Having said that, for clean tech, the general time horizons have presented between five and 10 years. Our current fund, though we entitle ourselves as an oil and gas fund, invariably we've got a vast amount of clean tech within that because mm -hmm. we're constantly looking at efficiency plays. Um, and I think if, if anyone's gonna look at the efficiency plays, particularly in the industrial sectors, the first thing that they realize is it's very hard to find things that are really game changers. We talk about the term game changer and we talk about innovation on a regular basis and those mm -hmm. those have been sort of over bandied about. But if you are actually going to talk about what is a game changer, well it's not 2% efficiency increase on a thousand different units in the, in the field. That's that's enough to move a corporate's worldview, but not a venture capitalist. And the reason being is that for us to get to that prize, the challenge, the cost, the time, it takes more manpower than we're able to, to present. So most clean tech funds tend to go in a different direction, which is to say they're looking for the ones that are more disruptive to whatever they see. Or is there a system, for example, a piggyback system that they can look at and say, here's the electrical grid, how can we come into that with new technology and suddenly it's frazzled or, or distributed and changed drastically? So that's really the challenge for clean tech. Yeah. And you sort of said that uh, clean tech venture capital is the, the little brother on the scene that's, that's come about in the past little while. Can you give us just a historical look at sort of where uh, clean tech has come over the past 10 years? What have been some of the ups and downs and, and how has the industry changed in your opinion? And, and where do you see then the industry going forward? Yeah, and, and the 10 year period that you cite is exactly the, the time of transition that we've seen heightened. Uh, but prior to about 2004, clean tech was a niche term, very niche in the sense that nobody really knew what it was. Uh, it had only been existing for maybe 15 years prior. Uh, but in, like I said, an incredibly small number of individuals around the world. In around 2003, 2004, after the collapse of the IT bubble, people were looking for what's the next bubble. And of course, the environmental movement, which had been getting so much traction through the 90s, well, it became clean tech. So a lot of investors piled into the notion of clean tech around 2004, and we saw this huge run-up, of course, culminating in $140 oil in 2008. 
which precipitously collapsed just about everything. Um, for example, in clean tech, the biofuels industry, that took probably one of the hardest hits. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of the investors, whatever scale they were in the food chain, they really had to, to retrench after about 2008, 2009. And you're seeing that shift already in some of the larger clean tech investors that they're now migrating away from pure clean tech and saying, well, let's just go back to our old knitting because that didn't work out so well the last time for us. Mm -hmm. So as a little brother, it's, it's young and, and people, when it's new, it's exciting. People flood the gates as fast as they can. And I think that bubble has already kind of burst and you're seeing that retrenching now materialize. Do, do you see parallels from, from my perspective, we saw in sort of 2000, 2001, the tech bubble burst and people were saying that was way too aggressive and way too optimistic. Mm -hmm. And then a lot of the companies that were founded in 2004, 2005, 2006 have become the Facebooks and Twitters and LinkedIn's of the world that have been wildly successful and, and financially profitable. Uh, do you think that it's a case of history repeating itself where there was too much money too early and that now is actually the correct market timing for venture capital? I completely do. Um, but having said that, not everybody in the space does. Mm -hmm. By a long shot, most people are actually saying that private venture capital funds have produced such poor returns, probably by dint of the vintage and, and the 2008-2009 retrenching, mm -hmm. which is exactly what we saw in 2001, that they don't think private funds are going to be the way to go. And, and now a lot of people are saying, well, let's just leave it to corporations to do what they do best, which is to innovate. That's the question that we don't necessarily agree with. Um, our position is that this is, in fact, exactly that right time. And the reason being is that we've seen the collapse. We've seen what doesn't, didn't work. We've, mm -hmm. we've already had the run up and tried it. So now let's kind of get back to basics. And we were of the opinion that definitely there are phenomenally great opportunities now to be found now that the field has rather cleared. Yeah. To, to what extent do you think that success in the clean tech venture capital space will be tied to either very high oil prices or globally priced carbon as two things that would sort of seem to spur innovation? Do you think that those are linchpin requirements for there to be success in clean tech VC or just what are your thoughts on, on the sort of requirements of success? Yeah, I, I think then it would also take a little bit of a question of how would one define clean tech? For example, if, if you worked um, in the oil and gas industry, you might say, well, natural gas is a cleaner hydrocarbon, you know, based on its better carbon to hydrogen ratio. And as a result, maybe natural gas is the clean tech that we should be pursuing. Whereas, of course, if you're talking to somebody who deals in heavy oil all day, what, what do they really care about more to them? Natural gas is something that they're going to be burning to extract their heavy oil. So they don't really see anything around natural gas being clean either. So it really depends on where you're sitting. I think to, to try to take a much more macro perspective on it, if, if we're going to look at what the driver that we're trying to achieve is, for example, if it is the reduction of carbon, well, then we have to start looking at the different aspects of the energy system in which we're seeing the highest evolution of carbon and whether or not we can actually tackle that in a pragmatic and adept way with today's technology. Not to discount the investment for tomorrow's technology by any stretch, because of course, that's exactly what we're doing. But if we're going to take that macro look, I think we need to really see where can we get the most reduction overall for the buck. And do you think that that reduction will come until there's a price on carbon, or is that something you're seeing an appetite to reduce now? So that's, that is the biggest challenge. To be honest, I'd say, yes, we're seeing a lot to, to reduce it now. Does a price of carbon change that? Absolutely. I mean, fundamentally, when you get right down to any financial decision and you're seeing that there's a price of on that carbon emitted and are there ways you can reduce that? To be sure, people are going to be making decisions around that. Is it a good thing in all cases is a different conversation. And the challenge for any policymaker, for example, is to determine exactly which aspects of their particular economy are worth taxing with that carbon. In Canada, for example, many people would say there's no way you can be putting carbon tax on coal because that's electricity that we heat our homes with, if not natural gas. But we heat our homes with in winter. It's practically a human right that you're now infringing on. Whereas to put a carbon tax on oil, yeah, then you have the transportation industry getting a little bit miffed, but the average person will find a way to accommodate a couple extra bucks every month. So it, it's really hard for the policymakers to come up with something that is, here's how we're just going to unleash this on the economy and let it make itself cleaner. It, it's going to be a real touch and go game for a long time. Mm -hmm. 
And so to switch gears a little bit, uh, I'd love to dive in a little bit more about Frontera and your, uh, the fund that you guys are working on. So uh, why start a fund uh, in, in the time frame when you said that there's a lot of people retrenching and even leaving the, the energy venture capital space and the clean tech venture capital space? Um, why start a new fund? What do you guys see that others aren't seeing? We're seeing a whole bunch of new ideas. It's, it's really just that simple. The benefit of having the field cleared um, of mm-hmm. other investors means I've got less competition. So that's great for me. But equally so, there have been so many startups uh, just in the past few years by dint of this push towards accelerators and, and new entrepreneurial studies. I think people are starting to really rediscover what that was. And it got lost for almost 15 years, that notion. Now that we're seeing the big push, as a venture capital investor, what I'm seeing is I'm seeing thousands of great new ideas out there. I, I don't want to offend any of them, but bluntly speaking, it's practically a cherry picking market. So it's fantastic for us to be able to see all them. The, the reason I wouldn't want that to sound offensive though, is because when we're looking at them, not everything, as I mentioned, is VCable. That's what we yeah. kind of call it. If it's eligible for VC and it fulfills that which would be required for our kind of capital, mm-hmm. it doesn't mean that it's a bad idea by any stretch. It also means that maybe we can introduce you to an investor who's more appropriate for what you're going to try to do, which could be just an acquisition in three years. We're taking a longer view. It's harder for us to to invest in the thousand new startups, and we do end up only picking one to five tops. Yeah. And so what are those things when you hear from an entrepreneur, you said that there's sort of a glut of great ideas right now in the market, but what are the things that pique your interest in looking at making an investment or in in seeing a business that you think has that market potential? What are the the hooks or the the ideas that you're really looking for right now? So we we're very fundamentally driven. We look at what are the thermodynamics involved? What's the, if it's a chemical process, if it's physics, what are the rules of optics that are involved. And then we see if they've been broken. And then we establish, have these guys actually found a workaround? For example, if you look at uh, catalysts, and there's a vast uh, raft of catalysts in chemistry and biochemistry and all sorts of things, and figuring out exactly whether or not you can reduce what the total energy required for a uh, particular reaction to occur, if you can bring that down, well, that could be your energy savings right there. But you have to find very innovative ways by which you can get around the existing laws of physics. When we see one that has really demonstrated, here's the environment in which I'm operating, and here's how I'm able to circumvent what the ordinary rules were, that's the kind of entrepreneur that we're all over. Yeah. So do you spend more times in labs and talking to scientists than you ever thought you would? Uh, I started there, and I've, I hope to finish there, to yeah. be honest, more because it's a, it's a more comfortable environment. If, if I'm going to go deal with the stock exchange, I'm going to send one of the partners. Yeah, I'd rather be in the lab. I'm I'm that one of the partnership. Yeah, and so if you were to switch to the other side of the table right now and and be looking at creating your own uh, energy or or clean tech startup right now, what are the opportunities and market spaces that really excite you? The number one area, without a doubt, has to be water, and it's on every aspect of that. Water is such a complicated thing because I think I think we turn on the faucet and we see clean water gushing out and and we take it incredibly for granted living in a country that's covered in ice half the year. If you're going to do any major industrial process, it has water coming in and water going out. And along there, it gets polluted, it has to be retreated, and then it has to meet certain environmental and toxicological uh, specifications before it can be effluent. Throughout all of those processes, and I mean, we're talking everything from oil and gas, SEG-D produces more water than it does oil. So here in Alberta alone, if we're producing more water than oil, well, we should be considering exactly what is the ramification on treatment trains for that water. How are we getting clean water? How are we going to be managing it? Without a doubt, we are constantly looking at advanced materials around that sector. Perfect. Uh, and, and any last thoughts or or sort of perspectives that you'd like to share with our audience as far as uh, if any of our students or any of our listeners are ever interested in learning more about venture capital or clean tech venture capital, any sort of ideas or resources you would want to share for people that are looking to understand this world a little bit better? That's a very difficult question to answer, mostly because um, venture capital for itself has done a very good job of trying to keep some mystique around it. I am always happy to talk to students and entrepreneurs who want to learn more about it. 
um, and demystify that because that mystique has served the venture capital community very well, but it's also made entrepreneurs extremely wary of venture capitalists. And they get this horrible rap as being guys who are basically going to come in, pirate your entire company, and then bolt at the first valuation they can get out. That has not been served by the venture capital community by and large, but equally so, getting away from that way of thinking is probably the most important step for any entrepreneur who's got a good idea. They have to be disabused of that fear. So the most important thing I can ever offer is, yeah, if you want ever to learn more, arrange it and talk to us. We would be happy to come and speak to any entrepreneurs, teams, whatever you've got about people who, who want to learn more about this stuff. Perfect. Well, I, I appreciate you coming on this show. I think this is a great first step in, in educating our sort of audience and our members a little bit more on the world of venture capital and, and clean tech. And so I would invite you to come back on future shows if you ever have any sort of deals or, or, or portfolio companies that you're working with. Uh, we'd love to have you back and, and invite you to share more with our audience. Uh, it'd be totally my honor. Thank Perfect. you very much. Yeah, thanks for your time, Alex. Our final segment tonight will be an essay that was done by one of our student members in Europe, Julian, who has an insightful look at decommissioning of oil rigs and the logistical, financial, and human resource challenges we face as a society in dealing with industrial infrastructure that dwarfs even the Eiffel Tower in size, scope, and raw materials. Sometimes you'd walk along the shore, watching the sea, the tantalizingly empty expanses of water, light drooping glimmeringly from the sullen skies. Almost forgetful that a few dozen miles offshore, human life has been thriving 24 hours a day for more than 40 years. But they're here, the hoy rigs, barely perceptible to the human eye, dwarfed by the sheer immensity, their steel and concrete contraptions shooting out from the liquid landscape. Each a small prodigy of engineering ingenuity, standing against the swell and the foul weather, in one of the harshest maritime environments. They may look frail, but they served us well. They've provided access to the North Sea deeply buried reaches. Throughout the years, all companies have increased their drilling capacity and densified the transportation network, laying out new pipelines to connect every production site to the refining and processing hubs ashore. Meanwhile, we have continued to indulge our fossil fuel addiction somewhat careless of a cleaning job to come. Offshore rigs in the North Sea have been producing oil since the 1970s, Norway and the UK being the lead producers, followed by the Netherlands and Denmark. But production on the UK continental shelf has peaked around 1999, and the petroleum province has since gone into decline. In a context of high hold prices, aging rigs are now being pushed to the limits to improve recovery rates. But over the next 30 years, virtually all the infrastructure put in place in the North Sea will require decommissioning, representing an enormous engineering challenge. Tons of old iron will have to be broken down in large quantities, calling for huge cranes and vessels to ship it back to shore. Under the current legal framework, North Sea operators are under strict requirements to decommission wells, platforms, pipelines, and overproduction or storage facilities once production has ceased. Beyond the large liability that this represents for both the companies and the government, hence the taxpayer, there is increasing concern on potential environmental impact, in particular the possible disturbance of ecosystems that have grown up around the rigs. A number of stakeholders are now putting a high premium on the environment, but alternative approaches and in particular disposal at sea, such as the rig-to-reef schemes championed by California, seem hardly transferable to the North Sea. Outside the legal aspects and the fact that California has only 27 offshore rigs to dispose of, the Brent Spar controversy in 1995 created a bad precedent in Europe. Despite approval from the British government, the Shell Oil Company provoked widespread outrage when it announced its intent to dispose of its storage facility at sea. The uproar that followed contributed to move the regulatory lines toward tighter rules. Because the law clearly states that the owner of a rig bears residual liability in perpetuity, including if the asset is sold and the new owner defaults, 
companies are now taking every precaution to kill potentially contentious issues in the bud. However, a number of rigs still benefit from derogations due to the boundless complexity of a safe and cost-efficient dismantling. And yet, the scale of the challenge is daunting. 500 installations, including large concrete substructures in the region of 680,000 tons, 31 rigs with steel jackets of more than 10,000 tons, more than the frame weight of the Eiffel Tower. If you add 10,000 kilometers of pipelines to remove and 5,000 wells to plug, you'll get a first picture of a real magnitude order. Decommissioning is an expensive process. Early estimates for the UK alone are about $60 billion and increase every year as more knowledge is gained on the whole process and cost estimates are being revised upwards. Well plug and abandonment, for example, represents $4.5 million per well with an average 30 days to complete with one dedicated crew. Exact decommissioning costs are therefore exceedingly difficult to calculate and current forecasts often assume, somewhat optimistically, that economies of scale and progress on the learning curve will be fast enough to reduce total expenditure. In the UK, those costs can currently be expensed for tax purposes, although it is yet unclear how relief schemes will play out as decommissioning activity grows, especially since taxpayers, quite ironically, are the main shareholders in a business most are hardly aware of. In the North Sea, the work environment compounds the difficulty to remove offshore installations, imposing seasonal schedules on an already long dismantlement process. Weather conditions are too erratic during winter months for lifting large structures. Therefore, removals tend to occur mainly throughout the summer, and such delays may easily increase the initial cost predictions. As for offshore development, innovation and shared learning will be crucial to decommissioning cost reduction. Unfortunately, the industry is far from being attractive. Oil and gas companies have repeatedly voiced their concerns about a potential skill gap, but they still seem to fail to attract young people and to give them an experience. Besides, the image and promotion of decommissioning has also failed, so far, to attract sufficient numbers of graduates and qualified engineers to keep up with the future needs. At the moment, a number of contractors involved in the decommissioning of offshore rigs are in fact the very same companies that did the installation in the first place. As a result, decommissioning projects have to compete for their services with new facilities installation. Since the latter are more likely to be profitable, the financial incentives to incur the costs of innovation in decommissioning will remain rather low. Nevertheless, and for all the risk and uncertainties still associated with the venture, some first movers have taken a bet on beating competition to the punch. They believe in the likelihood of game-changing technologies, as the market for decommissioning is expected to grow in the coming years. In the UK, the supply chain is already developing solutions that will provide more effective ways to move and remove pieces of infrastructure in more economic ways. In the summer 2013, the Shell Oil Company contracted the Peter Shelter, a huge decommissioning vessel which is being built in Korea and will bring single-lift capacity to the market, a technology formerly deemed impossible. It will basically enable to lift the steel jackets on which the top sides of platforms are laid without having to cut them into smaller pieces, that is, in a single lift, as this is already the case for the top sides modules. And by all engineering standards, this will be quite an incredible achievement. A long, tedious and complicated work looms in the North Sea, with huge costs for oil companies. The UK oil and gas industry spent about $780 million in 2012 on decommissioning, a figure which is expected to rise steadily over the remainder of the decade. Beyond the engineering challenge, decommissioning is about developing a technical capacity and efficient supply chain. Failing to meet them, North Sea operator might end up losing both the oil and the opportunity to develop valuable 
and very marketable skills. With that thought-provoking and insightful essay from Julian, we now call to a close the fourth episode of Energy Voices. If you wish to listen to previous episodes of Energy Voices, please visit bit.ly slash energyvoices or check out the link at cgsw.com. Before we close for the night, we'll provide one final reminder that the Student Energy Regional Summits are coming up on June 19th and 20th in Mexico City, New York, Aberdeen, and Cape Town. The tagline for these summits is Many Regions, One World, and will be an incredible opportunity for youth and students to learn about the complexity of the energy system within their region, connect with experts and student peers that are like-minded and pushing towards a sustainable energy future. You can learn more and sign up by visiting studentenergysummits.com. Energy Voices is produced by Sean Collins and Mark Affeld, with contributions from Julia Kabuma, Jenny Matchett, and Julian Mathonier.